The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. First, want to acknowledge all the different uh, teachers that subbed for me while I was away when Fricky spoke last Sunday night. Anybody who was here, otherwise, I think the talk will be online or is online for people to listen to. I heard it was a good talk, and. Um, I want to welcome back Gabe Keller, a longtime community member and one of our teachers here. He's been doing the young adult retreats every quarter with Shelley Graff and led a group down at Carleton College where he uh, went to school and graduated uh, about a year ago now. It's been a while already. Gabe has been on an eight-month retreat at IMS, Inset Meditation Society in Massachusetts. He did the annual fall three-month retreat, took two days to see his girlfriend in Boston, and then began a five-month retreat at the Forest Refuge that just ended on the 20th? Oh, it's been three weeks already. Oh, oh good. So early May. So it's nice to have Gabe back in town, and you'll be seeing him around, hopefully. And uh, we're, we've been looking, uh, those of you who were around at the end of March and early April know we've been starting to look at the hindrances, this next section in Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening. Some of you are reading along, don't need to, but if you'd like a little bit more input in your practice, you can get a hold of the book by Joseph Goldstein. It's a recent book of his that came out in, a, in the fall. And uh, starting on chapter 15, we're looking at this fourth foundation of mindfulness. The Buddha described four ways to be mindful. Mindful of the body, mindful of the feeling tone or the feeling quality of our experience. Is the moment pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Mindfulness of the mind generally, like what's the shape or quality of the mind? And then this fourth category, fourth way of being mindful is taking up some of the maps that the Buddha used and being mindful of our experience through that map. So this first map we're going to look at that we started talking about a month ago is this map In Buddhism, that's called the five hindrances. But it's really the five, I mean, it could be many, you could divide this many ways, but the different ways, the different habits of mind or activities of mind that obscures or hinders the clarity of awareness. So the Buddha divided this as an easy way of remembering into five ways that the mind, the qualities of the mind or the tendencies of the mind hinders clarity. One way we hinder the clarity of the mind is when the mind gets colored or caught in greediness. You know, if I'm leaning forward, really wanting this room to be cooler, or really wanting people to recognize me, or really wanting whatever, then that desiring, wanting, it completely changes my perceptions of what's what's going on here who I am, who you are, what's happening here. All of that is affected by the presence of greed in the mind. The other, the next, is aversion. We, this one we all know. When we're under the influence of rage or fear or impatience, you know, all the different flavors of aversion, any of the flavors of aversion, it affects our perception of the world and experience. Dullness. When we're under the influence of dullness, just... Not so much even being physically exhausted, but it's more the heavy states of mind. You know, where 
we, the mind feels like low. It just doesn't feel like we can do anything. It's just like, oh, I just, I can't even brush my teeth. I can't even take my clothes off. I can't, you know, can't even make that phone call. Even though it's life or death, or, you know, or it's like, I'll lose my job if I don't do this. Oh, I can't, it's just too much. It's like, that's just like getting caught in greed or aversion. We can get caught in the experience of dullness or get caught in the experience of restlessness, kind of hyped up, always feeling like i got to figure this out, i got to do that. Or we can get caught up in doubt, like demanding clarity in a way that isn't available. But we keep demanding it, keep spinning, trying to get clarity. Why did this happen to me? Now that's why did and we keep going. It's like a circular doubt. Some doubt is good because it opens the mind to looking in a fresh way, it's seeing things more deeply. But a lot of doubt, a lot of the doubt we get caught in is more circular. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead to anything but more confusion, more not sort of not knowing what to do and feeling like thinking about it will be helpful, even though we've thought about it. Like how many times there are certain places in our life that our mind returns to. We basically are thinking the same thought we thought before, but it always feels like, well, this time, thinking this thought will get me somewhere. <laughs> but it never gets us anywhere, except to the feeling that I needed to think that thought again. You know, I've got to revisit that image or revisit that memory or revisit that kind of mental activity over and over. And we kind of know, but we just don't know what else to do but revisit it, even though we have this inkling that it's not going anywhere. That's how seductive doubt is. So... The most important thing, or the first thing we want to learn about these hindrances, and this we see directly, this is the important thing of these maps, this fourth foundation or fourth way of practicing mindfulness. We're using these maps, and the important things of these maps that that really come from the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's articulation of his own experience with his own mind, is that they should line up with their own experience. It's not enough to memorize the map. We do need to memorize it enough, but then we need to reflect on it in terms of our own actual direct, immediate experience. So like, let's say we're sitting in formal meditation or just going about our day, and all of a sudden there's somewhere with all that, my mind is afflicted. And then we remember, because we've memorized, oh yeah, well there's this thing called the five hindrances. I wonder if this lines up with what's going on right now for me. So we look, okay. Is it greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, or doubt? Which of these conceptual labels might help actually illuminate the direct, immediate experience of this mind right here and now? And so we we try them out, like, is there greed? (laughs) You know, it's as simple as that. Just bringing that to mind as you look at your mind, and then all of a sudden you might understand the present moment experience of the mind in a new way that label of greed or aversion or dullness or restlessness or doubt might clarify the activity of the mind right here, right then, as it's actually unfolding there, right in the space of the moment. So that's the important thing. And the thing we learn when we do that application or that reflection, we know the teachings and then we reflect on them in terms of our experience, is we, by looking at the presence of the hindrances, the first thing we notice is, is the effect on perception. That 
the mind that's under the influence of greed or aversion or dullness or restlessness or doubt, the perception is affected. How the mind understands and perceives the world, whatever is happening, is affected. So it's like, uh, you know, getting in your car and driving around and then noticing you're drunk. It's like, I mean, it's really useful to know that your perception is impaired when it's impaired. I was just uh, finished up four weeks of retreat. I had a little two-day break in the middle of two retreats. And, uh, but anyway, and I was up in this last retreat. I was up in uh, this wilderness area where Ajahn Punadamo has a forest hermitage with a number of cabins for lay practitioners to practice. This is a Canadian Buddhist monk, wonderful person, who comes down to come around to teach every winter. He'll be here, I think, around the 12th of December this year. You might make a mental note of that. He's a good person to come and hear teach. But anyway, he has this wonderful place on the way to Thunder Bay, just across the Minnesota border by Grand Portage. So I was there for the last part of my retreat. And then Thursday evening I left. And first you have a kind of a dirt road where, or not a dirt road, but a very unused road for the first 10 miles, and then you get on 61, which is that North Shore Drive in Canada. And I get to that intersection, you know. I see traffic coming, and I sort of note that, and then turn into the lane without realizing that they're going fast and I'm going slow. (laughs) Because my mind was under the influence of sort of not being in the real world for the last, most of the last four weeks, you know, like not being in a a mechanical (laughs) device, like a car. And having to deal with, like, traffic. And it was, like, a really crazy thing to do. And then, fortunately, after I escaped that, <laughs> the mind realized, okay, I'm, my perception is not normal, right? It's, a, it's under the influence of having been in a very refined, removed, secluded state. So, I need to be careful, <laughs> which is really good. That's exactly what... We want to know, like, when, our, when we realize that our mind is under the influence of aversion, it's like we want that same sort of uh, compassionate appreciation. I need to be careful. There's a lot of aversion in my mind. There's a lot of restlessness, a lot of dullness, a lot of greed in the mind. And I want to be careful because I might make choices skewed by the influence of the hindrance that's present. And the Buddha likened, I think I mentioned this in early April, likened these influences to when the mind is under the influence of greed, it's as if a beautiful pool of water, someone's poured a lot of food coloring in it, you know, so it's purple. What's, it's not so clear, that, that beautiful wilderness lake, you know. You maybe have had the opportunity to be at some alpine lakes, like in the Colorado mountains or Sierra mountains, and they can be, you can like look over some rocks and it might be 15 feet deep, but because of the clarity of the water, it's like you can't tell, is it two feet deep or is it 15 feet deep? It's really so still, so clear. But if you dumped a lot of dye in it, you, you, know, you wouldn't have that beautiful transparency. And being caught in aversion or ill will is like the water's boiling. And being caught in dullness it's like uh, a lot of algae through the water. And being caught in restlessness, it's as if the wind has whipped up the surface of the water. And doubt is like it's real muddy. 
So the point the Buddha is making with the simile is that these hindrances distort perception. And this is something we want to wake up to. It's not even so much we want to control it, but we have to see, the first step is to see that greed affects perception. So if you tend to be a greedy type, you walk into a room like this and you immediately scope out the attractive people and the attractive shirts and the attractive you know, jewelry or whatever it is that you're interested in. You know, or somebody who just has attractive body language, like looks like she or he's really at ease in the world, comfortable in their skin. You go, oh yeah, that's a cool person. That's what a greedy mind does. It notices it notices what it likes. If you're under the influence of aversion or if you tend to be an aversive type, you immediately notice what you don't like in the room. Why is that person moving? You know, why did they set up the cushions this way? Why this? Why this? Why is the temperature like this? Too cold, too warm. Why does his voice sound that way, you know, or his body language that way? So we just find what we don't like. When the mind is dull, everything seems to be not worthy of being paid attention to. It's just like, oh, it's too hard, too difficult. I'd just rather let my mind sink. And we're restless. It's like things aren't happening fast enough. So we can start to notice this. Now the second thing the Buddha said to notice that the five, this reflection on the five hindrances will reveal when we pay attention to them is the weight that comes with the five hindrances. There's a certain, and it's really important to get this about the hindrances. They're weightful. That's why the Buddha offers it as a map. And it's the first map he asks us to pay attention to, to master. We master it first just on the level of information. Okay, here's the conceptual idea. The mind is obscured by these five things. Whatever obscures your mind, just put it in one of these five categories. Greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, and doubt. And memorize that. So whenever you feel like your mind is obscured or heavy or having a difficult time in life, then discern which of the five hindrances is operating and the the you know that map it's not perfect but it just is useful to more clearly see because the concept of version is not the experience of aversion just like the concept cupcake is not a cupcake but having the concept of version or desiring might does make it easier to recognize the actual experience so the second thing, like I said, that we want to notice is the weightfulness or the heaviness of these, the presence of these five things. And again, the Buddha uses a simile, and these similes can be a useful kind of carrier of information. So the way this simile works is he says, desire is like the experience of being in debt. You know, when you're in financial difficulty, you owe a lot of money, can't quite keep up and you got things you got to you know you need money for it's really it's the same experience of thinking oh if i only had i really want this to happen in my life it it makes our present moment experience feel like not enough not okay because i got to take care of this i got to get this 
And aversion is like being sick. And you, and you probably might recognize this because aversion is one of the most obvious hindrances because it's so painful. So when we're caught in rage or caught in impatience or fear, remember fear is a kind of aversion, notice how it's like being really sick. You know, when you're getting a bad head cold or a bad flu, it's very oppressive. And it's like hard to get, you know, we feel trapped by it. Like we can't get out of it. We just have to let it run its course. And I know this from direct experience, recent experience. You know, when I get caught in fear or anxiety or insecurity, you know, different flavors of aversion, it's really, uh, it's like sick, being sick. You just, uh, you need sometimes... All you can do is be patient and let it run its course. Because once you're really in it, meaning you've unconsciously allowed the mind to spin in the insecurity, in the rage or whatever, so it's, it's built up ahead of steam, it's got some momentum, it's not so easy for wisdom to cut through and the mind to kind of be free of it. Sometimes you just have to hang in there and just try to avoid acting out the aversion in you know in how you interact with other people or the choices that you make so you're not kind of uh contributing to the harm that might arise from it so we have being in debt for desire or craving we have being sick for aversion we have being imprisoned for dullness like when your mind is really heavy it's like you're imprisoned by that heaviness. It's like you can't really do anything, which is like being in prison. I just don't have the energy to sort of show up and even interact in a skillful way with my partner or do what needs to be done. And restlessness is like being enslaved because, you know, when we're all hyped and it's like we're being driven by the energy. It's not actually what we're doing is what needs to be done, but we can't not, not do it. Because we've got all this energy, and it's like a beast that will eat us up if we don't give it something to do. So we're neurotically checking our email and cooking, even though we're not hungry, and making these calls, even though we don't really have anything to say to the person, and you know, checking this and checking that. And even though we just check the New York Times, we check it again, and you know, maybe there's a new story. Maybe that ice field in Antarctica has already slipped into the ocean, and <laughs> the Mississippi is rising. And then the last one, doubt is like being on a dangerous road. You know, in a neighborhood you shouldn't be in, at a time of day you shouldn't be there. And you're, you know, you've got, you're decked out with expensive jewelry or, you know, something you shouldn't be showing. And, you know, we feel really afraid when we're in a dangerous place, whatever that might be for you. So this really the the transformation and the the deepening freedom of the mind depends on seeing that these hindrances obscure perception or affect perception the clarity of the mind and that they're immediately stressful there's no way to be angry without immediately contracting the heart the buddha tell, has another simile he says you know when, you're, when we're angry, it's like wanting to throw a red-hot ball of metal at somebody. But who's going to get burnt first? You know, you may or may not hit that person with that red-hot ball. 
but you're definitely going to burn your hand picking it up to throw it. And so the question is, when we're caught in greed, when we're caught in aversion, dullness, restlessness, or doubt, are, are we at least at times immediately noticing with clarity the truth of the weight? Because it's the not seeing the insanity of greed, aversion, that leads us to keep going there. You know, you might go home tonight and you might pick up a catalog, you know, that's arrived in the mail, L.L. Bean, or whatever, shows up at your house. And uh, it's like, looking through that, we're just triggering a lot of greed and probably aversion, like, oh, that's too much, or that's a stupid thing, or, yeah, that would be great. And the question, it seems like useful to be imagining, fantasizing about what we want, or fantasizing, imagining what terrible thing might happen to us. It seems functional, it seems sane, to be playing in the world of greed and aversion. Because our mind is superficial, meaning we see on the surface, aversion seems kind of sweet, like self-righteousness seems a little sweet. Thinking about how we're going to show that person we're right, get kind of our just revenge with that person. It seems kind of sweet, empowering, and the mind in a way collects itself around the anger that we have, the self-righteousness that we have. Same with greed, imagining us transforming our house or our apartment getting a cool thing that's going to make our life better, you know. So on the surface, there's some sweetness, there's some juice, some life energy. And if we're just superficial, that's all we'll notice. And it's only when the mind is more steady and quiet that in a way it sees beyond. It's not that that excitement isn't there, but there's more there. The mind or heart is entangled, it's bound up, it's stressful. But we don't necessarily notice that. But when we do, then it's then the abandoning of the greed and aversion comes naturally. So that if you're wondering why you haven't abandoned that particular story that triggers a lot of anger in your mind, or why you keep wanting this thing, or wanting one thing after another, even though you kind of know that it's unhelpful, like why do I keep doing that? It's simply because the mind is operating on a superficial level and it isn't really seeing how the presence of the greed is changing your perception and it's impactful. It weighs down, it burdens the heart. It's insane. So here's a a strategy for working with this and I'll get this up on the Common Grounds blog so you can... Get you kind of refer to it or print it out for yourself if you want. And it, it's really an adaptation from some teachings from Saida Utejaniya. He's this wonderful Burmese um, Buddhist monk who has been coming to the States now maybe for five or seven years, every few years to teach. I've been able to do a couple of retreats with him. I was just on a two-week retreat with him at IMS in uh, early May, late April, early May. And he has a way of working with desire, with aversion. And generally he 
As I mentioned in the guided sit, it's so important for the mind to be interested. If we're not interested in the present moment experience, you can bet you're not really being mindful. And one strategy to help the mind stay interested in what's unfolding in the body and mind is to ask some questions. Not mechanically, not continuously, neurotically, but in a skillful way to sort of reflect the mind's capacity to be interested in understanding the mind, understanding the experience of the mind as it actually is. So, for example, if you feel like there is the presence of greed and aversion, the first question that will help sustain the mindful awareness and the deepening of understanding is, what does this feel like right now? So you notice, like, because there's some degree of mindful awareness, you notice that you keep dwelling on certain thoughts that the mind, when it sees it, characterizes as anger or aversion. Okay, how does this feel? So the mind, the spinning with these particular thoughts, what does that feel like? So we're moving from the thoughts, the content of the thoughts, to what that feels like. And at this point, you're going to learn something. Just this much alone, you'll, you'll learn something. And you're going to learn, can the mind notice, what's, notice what it's feeling without getting drawn back into the content, seduced by the content? And you're, you're going to have to make a choice here. If you keep getting seduced by the content, then you shouldn't be paying attention to what it feels like. Because the feeling of it, the unpleasantness of it, basically, is just drawing you right back into the content. So then you need to redirect your attention away from what it feels towards something neutral, like come back to the experience of the breath, or come back to the sensations of the body, or come back to walking. I forget who we were talking to. Maybe it was down in Northfield yesterday. Uh, when and I were down in Northfield, I was teaching, and um, there's a monthly sitting group down there. And I was giving this example that we heard when Wynn and I were, my wife and I were out at uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery in France, Plum Village. Some of you know he's a very well-known Buddhist monk from uh, Vietnam, wonderful teacher. And uh, he was exiled from Vietnam. He was a, a powerful activist in Vietnam, neither pro-West or pro-North Vietnam, but really taking care of the village people as a Buddhist monk, kind of as a social worker, spiritual teacher in this terrible situation in the mid-60s in Vietnam. And then he and some other activists went to Paris when the Paris peace talks were happening. I forget exactly when that was happening, maybe 68. And then they didn't let him back into Vietnam after that. Neither the South Vietnamese government nor the North Vietnamese liked him because he was a peace activist. And they both were invested in war, both the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese and Americans, of course, were invested in war. So they didn't let him back. So from the late 60s until about 10 years ago, they didn't let him back in. But anyway, we were out there for a three-week retreat with him, and it was right at the time he was negotiating with the North, uh, the Vietnamese officials now um, to come back and, and do some teachings in Vietnam. So this is, you know, many years, a couple decades later. And they were negotiating, like, about whether he could bring books in and whether he could teach and what kind of activities he could be involved in when he was there because they were very frightened about having this charismatic religious teacher come back 
given that, of course, it was a communist country. But they also really wanted to uh, be accepted by Western countries and expand their trade. So they had real incentives to let them back, too. And so Thich Nhat Hanh was in this situation where he was negotiating, and it was a really difficult negotiation because they had sort of suggested he could bring some of his books in. He's written probably 30 books. I'm not kidding. Some of you, I'm sure, have read some of his books. And they kept whittling down like what they were going to let him bring to distribute to people. And it was frustrating for him, and his anger was getting triggered. And he described it to us in one of his talks, you know, how at one point so much anger arose, he couldn't be with it. So instead, he did what he'd been practicing probably for decades and decades. He did mindfulness of breathing. So right there in the middle of this intense negotiation, he just went quiet and brought his attention to his breath for, he said, a, a very strangely long time in that context. You know, it was kind of a weird thing to do to just be with your breath until he regained the composure of his mind by dropping the way you drop the spinning with the aversion. Oh, these crazy, fearful leaders, you know, these idiots or whatever his mind might be thinking, you know. You have to really put it down. You can't think your way out of aversion because the perception has been affected by the aversion. So any way you think about it, I I can tell you this with 100% confidence from my own experience, having tried to think my way out of aversion, out of insecurity, out of fear, infinite number of times (laughs) in my last 10-day, 11-day retreat, (laughs) let alone my (laughs) many lifetimes, it doesn't work. When the mind has lost its balance, First and foremost, we need to rediscover our balance. We have to find it again. And usually that means bringing the attention away. So he did that. And he refound a sense of composure, inner happiness, inner peace. And he realized the right thing to do was to accept their terms so he could return to Vietnam. And he did. And he had a powerful impact. So powerful that he did return at least one more time and possibly two more times. And then... They, I, the last thing I heard, they weren't letting them come back um, because a lot of monasteries got formed and people got really interested in his teachings and I think they, the government officials got a little bit afraid. But anyway, I'm not 100% sure on the details right now because that was a... We have had a visiting uh, monk who's uh, accompanied Thich Nhat Hanh on those trips come to Common Ground a number of times. He started actually as one of my students way back when and now has uh, been a long-time monk now in that tradition. Um, so we need to, the first thing we discover when we look at our mind and we look at the presence of aversion or the presence of greed is we see whether we have enough composure to investigate it. And if we don't, we need to turn the attention to something that will bring balance back to the mind. It might be loving-kindness phrases. It might be mindfulness of breathing. It might be taking a walk where we can just pay attention to the beauty of the trees or the beauty of just the physicality of walking. But do something that the mind can collect itself around that won't trigger aversion. Because the first thing we need to do is get some space, some distance from the aversive reaction. 
Because you can't look at aversion with aversion. You have to look at aversion with wisdom, with balance, a balanced attention. It's the only way you understand aversion or see aversion or greed or any of the hindrances, what needs to be seen. Because the presence of the identification to the hindrance affects the perception, so there's no way to see it clearly. So the first step is to ask, well, how does this feel? And then to make a choice. If you can be with the feeling, the unpleasantness of it, then continue the investigation. If you can't, then turn your attention to something that you can be with 100% without falling into a negative mind state, like the breath. For That's why we train relating or being mindful of the breath in that balanced way, because then it becomes a good friend. And even when there's a lot of triggers around, we can bring the attention to the breath. And because the mind has so much momentum being with the breath in a balanced way, even in a difficult situation, we might be able to do that. I mean, I definitely now have that with mindfulness of the body. It's like I can be like, you know, in my recent retreat where a lot of insecurity and fear was coming up, not really related to anything that was going on at the retreat, but just old stuff coming up, which happens on retreat sometimes, percolates up. Um, but I could always, in the middle, at any moment, I could come back to my body and my mind, just through 32 years of practice, pretty regular, you know, everyday practice, you know, my mind knows how to be with my body in a spacious way. It really trusts the awareness of the body and knows how to trust, even when it's unpleasant, knows how to be in the body without reacting to it. So I could get moments of freedom, but then as soon as I leave that refuge, then I might get swept away again, but then I can come back. But that's, that's okay. Because the important thing is that we have a contrast to being caught in the aversion or caught in the greed. Because that's, it's like the edges, the transitions where the learning happens. From like, you know, the Buddha talks about greed as being in debt. So like being caught in greed, like I'm in debt, and then we go back to the body or back to the breath, and we're out of debt. We feel the freedom from being in debt. And then we get swept away. We're back. Oh, yeah, that would be so cool. I wish that. I hope that. And oh, I'm imprisoned again. I'm in debt again. I'm caught. The mind is caught. And then we step out of it. So the first step is to assess whether we can do some work, if not redirect the attention. Then if you can do some work, then the next question to ask, once you see that, okay, this feels like this, and the next question is to go a little deeper, to really get below the story, like, what actually is the mind afraid of? Or what actually is the mind resisting? So not in terms of the story, this person did this to me, I'd really like this to happen, but now we're really looking at it, looking at the experience free from the effects or free from the influence of the story. Because aversion, the experience of aversion or greed ultimately isn't about the story of what I want or what I want to get rid of. It's really about some unpleasant feeling. It's like, for example, in my own experience with aversion, with fear and insecurity, it's like uh, it really came down to seeing in a very subtle existential level way, you know, the heart not wanting to relax with not being in control. That this sort of fundamental ungovernableness of life. Like, I can't find safety. 
I can't conceive. My mind like really wants to conceive of how I can be safe, but I couldn't find it. And, I, and then on the level of story, it's like I can't find it because these people think this, you know, or, you know, or I have this disagreement with these people in this way or something like that. But no, it's much more subtle and fundamental, the actual problem of insecurity coming from not being in control. So then that, that second question really gets to the core, the more essential existential problem. Which remember, this is not theoretical, it's not abstract, it's something that's happening in the here and now, right in the heart, mind, right now. The not willing, the not willingness to relax with insecurity or relax with not being in control. And so then, then that allows, when we get there, when we're able to discern that kind of issue, then it's not so much like, see, the, the instinct, this is a wrong instinct, but I'm saying it because we're all falling into this trap. We think, well, okay, I'm just going to accept this yucky feeling. But no, just hanging out in that dynamic, then the next question is, why is my mind going to greed or why is the mind going to aversion? Is it necessary? See, because basically what, what the mind needs to realize is the greed or the aversion is just a diversion. It's just like uh, a way of avoiding this uncomfortable place that there's this deep existential uneasiness and we don't want to just hang out there. So I'm going to get caught up in greed or get caught up in some aversion idea. Like, this shouldn't have happened. This is unfair. This has to stop. Or, I really want, if I had this, I hope this happens. And it's only when the mind sees the insanity and the unnecessariness of aversion and greed that it abandons it. So it really has to see that it isn't resolving what we think it's resolving. There's no way in terms of like me getting something or me getting rid of something that's going to resolve the existential problem of insecurity. The only thing that we can do in practice is we can abandon all of the ineffective ways the heart reacts to that existential situation. Then when we do that, the mind gets really clear because it's no longer being distorted by all these ineffective, inefficient, reactive patterns. The reactive patterns, again, are trying in a superficial way to manage a subtle existential uneasiness of the heart. So now we realize this is still from a very ordinary point of view. So this is not beyond any of our practice levels. In a very ordinary way, we're just realizing that actually the most appropriate, easeful, skillful way to handle my existential problem is just to kind of hang out in the uneasiness of being a human being and, and all that that means, being insecure, not in control. But that's not the end. If that, that would be quite, that's kind of like the, um, as I understand it, you know, I have, it's been since high school and early college years where I read a lot of the sort of existential teachings 
Um, and that's sort of this, I think, relatively wise place, like, well, just accept our existential situation. <clears throat> but that's not where the Buddha ended, you know, because in that place of not reacting to the basic insecurity of life, an insight opens up that's really hard to describe in words, that's profoundly transforming. But basically, in words, which never adequate, the mind, in that way, in that place of relaxing with this fundamental insecurity, the mind realizes that the insecurity doesn't relate back to anybody. So in Buddhism, we call this anatta, or the not-self principle, or the emptiness of self-centeredness. There may appear to be like there may appear to be a self that everything refers back to, me, but that's just an appearance arising from our thinking. And when we're no longer allowing the mind to be distorted by our thinking patterns, then a different kind of clarity arises, not the clarity that comes from clear thinking, which is a kind of clarity that can be useful, but a clarity that comes from the mind not under the influence. Thinking may or may not be present in the mind, but the mind isn't orienting around the conceptual meaning that the thinking is providing. It's just letting, you know, the mind is just letting thinking happen, but the mind, the clarity is coming from, you could say, like an intuitive way, from an intuitive place, not from a conceptual place. So I could have a lot of clarity, like this is common ground, it's Sunday night, I'm Mark Nunberg, I'm 56 years old, I'm a white male, you know, I'm married to this woman called Winfricky. We started the meditation center in 1993. I could have a lot of clarity about that, and it could really line up with other people. And so we have this consensual reality that we share and we all agree to. Or I could have a very kind of confused conceptual reality that nobody agrees with, you know. I used to be Cleopatra, and I've been reborn as Mark Nunberg, and... <laughs> You know, and all kinds of other things. I arrived on a spaceship in 1958 <laughs> from one of the moons of Jupiter. And, and that might not align with your conceptual reality. But the, this place where the mind has some freedom, that means it has, the mind has to be resting in, not in a conceptual reality, but we'd say in Dhamma, which is this, this sort of place of insecurity where things are changing, things are limited, unsatisfactory, things are impersonal. And we're hanging out, the heart, mind is taking refuge in that place, and that's the place where this deeper insight arises, where the mind realizes that although things are changing and life, embodied existence is limited, right? There's birth and death, there's competition, life has to eat life, right? That's messy. It's messy to live, have an existence where life has to eat life, right? It's hard to sort of live up to non-harming, our respect for non-harming when we're in this situation. I mean, even if you're a vegan, you can't plow fields without taking life. It's a mess, human existence or just existence generally. But the heart, the mind can realize a freedom in the messiness by not locating, not centering this great interdependent happening we call life or existence, not centering it anywhere, just letting it be the movement of nature. That's not a conceptual, I mean, it's, it is now a conceptual thing, right? 
but the experience is not conceptual. It's a realization, but the supporting cause for that realization is the heart being comfortable. So again, the, the three questions, when you can be stable with the hindrances, then notice how it feels, then drop beyond the story of what's causing the greed or causing the aversion to the kind of existential issue. The heart doesn't want to relax with this uneasiness. Doesn't want to be in the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the uh, anxiety. Doesn't want to be there. And you're there, and then in that place you're asking, does aversion help? Does greediness help? Does that whole psychological or emotional pattern of being averse, being afraid, wanting, craving, being dull, being restless, using doubt, is that helping? Is it necessary? And the mind, if you ask that question, don't try to answer the question, but if you ask that question in a natural way, in a non-forceful way, just putting it out there, then at some point the mind intuitively, not conceptually, intuitively the answer will be, no, it's, it's not useful. And at that point, the mind will realize, it will have an insight about aversion, for example, or about greed. Like, you will understand the unnecessariness of it. And it will forever change your relationship to aversive, your aversive habits. They won't be as strong as they were the moment before. And if you have that insight enough times, you will transform your personality slowly. So even though you might have in the past been a very aversive, impatient, rageful person, it will slowly transform because the mind will see that it's not necessary. It doesn't help. It's only because on a superficial level the mind thinks it's functional to be rageful or to be fearful or to be whatever hindrance you fall into. It's only because the mind thinks it helps that the mind keeps going there. And then the more we go there, the more the mind thinks it helps. It's if you've studied psychology, you might remember cognitive dissonance. You know, If you do something enough, even if it's completely dysfunctional, because you've done it so many times, the mind assumes, like, if I've done it, it's got to make sense. I'm not stupid. Actually, we are. But, but the mind doesn't want to own that. So because we keep doing something, the mind assumes it's rational, what we've done. So when we're in that situation, it's getting triggered again. We're going to do it again because we believe it's functional. But it's not. So we have to do this deep work where the mind realizes many times, not just one time, this isn't helpful. It has to see it clearly. It's not enough for us. If we did, if I give you a quiz now, you know, is aversion skillful? Is greed skillful? You'd all get 100%. But in the moment when greed is getting triggered or aversion is getting triggered, once again, we'll think it's functional. Like, well, in this situation, actually, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense for me to be rageful, to be angry, to want revenge. It just does. I'll leave it here. We'll come back for the next couple of weeks. We'll look more at uh, <clears throat> dullness and restlessness next week, but you can feel free to bring up any of the five hindrances or any questions or comments from your practice in the remaining ten minutes that you have. What comes to mind? Yeah, Anne. Like my, like my hair, like I have hair, but I feel like 
sensation. I, I, and I don't know if it's a good thing, like, this will help me when I feel adverse and I'm going to lose it with my kid, and instead of yelling because it's the clothes on the floor, da 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 I'm sort of, oh, but I have hairs. <laughs> Maybe it'll give me a, bit, a grounding. But anyway, talk about, what does your, does your sensation well, what I hear you saying, Anne, is that because you, other people might not know, but Anne's done a lot of Tai Chi and other body-related practices over the years, so she has a more refined mindfulness of the body because of this work, right? So that's your anchor. And so this, when by, by definition, an anchor means it's a place we've been putting the mindful awareness so because we've been returning there to our practices, that means that when the mind turns to that experience, it's more likely to know that experience in a non-conceptual way. So what I heard you describing, when you described your body, I mean, it might sound weird to say your hair is out there, but what you're really saying, I think, is that you're experiencing your body in a non-conceptual way. Because the experience of the body in a non-conceptual way is not the experience, like when I normally think of my body, we think of it as having a certain shape and having weight. But all that is conceptual. Like even the thought that my knee's here, that's a thought. It's not actually an experience of sensation. And the actual experience of sensation doesn't have the same shape as the conceptual idea of the body, being limited by this, you know, skin that's not actually the experience of the body. Like if you close your eyes and if you feel your body, the sensations in your body in an honest way, you'll see it doesn't line up with your idea or image of your body. You can just do that experiment. That's called being mindful of the body. So it will help you, Anne, because it's your anchor. So when you see your son's clothes all over the house, you know, your mind, your attention your wisdom, right, will naturally come back to your anchor, just feeling the body as it actually is. And because that's a much more grounded, authentic way of showing up in the world, then you'll... See, if you're knowing the body in this more authentic, subtle way, then you're going to know the anger that's arising because of your son's clothes all over the place. You're going to know that in a more subtle, authentic way too. Because if your mind is in a more balanced, steady way with the awareness of the body, it's going to relate to these other things that are arising in your field of experience with the same level of steadiness and subtlety. Do you see? That's why we work with an anchor. Because with our anchors, the mind learns how to be balanced and subtle and steady. And then we can do that dance, like I was saying back before, where I can go back to my body, my mind gets refreshed, it's balanced, it's really seeing things in an impersonal, ephemeral way. And then I get drawn back into the insecurity. And for a moment or two, I see that the insecurity is also impersonal, not self. Also something that comes and goes, ephemeral. That whenever the mind takes a hold, sees it personally, it's heavy. But if the mind sees it as being impersonal and natural, it's not so heavy. So for a few seconds... I transform the relationship to insecurity and Anne transforms her relationship to her son. Instead of him being a bad teenage kid, you know, it's just stuff happening. It's just, he's nature, he's a force of nature doing what that 
force of nature does. Leaves clothes all over the place. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, Anne. It's, it's a good kind of practical example of what we've been talking about. Yeah, Tim. Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess first I'm interested in talking about the five interests one thing that we keep coming up with. Uh, sort of know, to know the experience of the product of the one that we want to understand where it's coming from. And, and recently I've been really mindful of my experience with development. And what's interesting is like, unlike greed and aversion, where I can typically notice what I'm craving or notice what I'm trying to run from, with dullness, I don't really. Yeah, actually, you brought up a, a number of really important points, Tim. So, one of your questions, like the importance of the antecedents. Well, on depending on um, kind of the emotional history of the pattern that's arising, there are places where that therapeutic understanding of how this thing has gotten set in motion can be quite useful and empowering. And and that's really the therapeutic level of Dharma practice. And it can it can you can um, work on it on it just in terms of your practice by reflecting, asking kind of questions. Generally that's not where we go, but it can be useful. And then there of course there are many therapeutic techniques that kind of really look at the history of that. But don't do that unless you need to do that. Right? Don't assume you need to know the history, the antecedents. Because what you really need to know about the dullness is like what it feels like right now. What it is right now is what you really need to know. But that therapeutic work, and I'm just using that word to define that looking back at the antecedents and the kind of stories that sort of feed that. Um, (coughs) What it does is it creates more safety that allows you to see what that feels like. You know, having a story that I feel this way because this happened to me 20 years ago might give you enough stability and confidence then to look at now the result. Okay, so the heart feels like this now. The mind's like this now. The heart hurts like this now. Now with the dullness, the the thing about the dullness is the story the mind tells itself is I can't look at it because my mind's dull. It's heavy. But the thing is, just because the mind is confused, caught in doubt, or really heavy, or really restless, there is a way for the mind to be very clear that dullness is like this. Confusion is like this. We don't actually need to get rid of the confusion. It's more like realizing that the confusion is, the dullness is an activity. It's a heavy, it's like heavy mental activity that can be known. So it's it's like, you've heard me say, I'm sure, Tim, that the mind has this mirror-like quality. And so there might be something really heavy in the mirror, but the mirror is, re- is just reflecting the heaviness of that thing, that mind state. But the, the, mind, the mirror isn't heavy. It's just reflecting the heaviness. So the mind that knows the heaviness isn't heavy. It isn't angry, it isn't craving or wanting, it isn't dull or restless or full of doubt. 
It's just knowing that doubt or restlessness or dullness is like this. So that information that I'm giving you right now, it's really the Buddha giving us this information, can be really helpful. If you can remember that information in that moment when you're dull, like the mind that knows that there's dullness isn't dull. There is dullness. There is this mental activity or mental pattern of what do you want to call it that's heavy and dull. But the knowing of it isn't dull. So just on the level of information will give you a different way of seeing what's going on in your mind. Just remembering. like, Because it will... It's like a different view than the view that will be there naturally, which is, I'm heavy, I'm dull. Like the whole thing, you're defining the whole thing as being heavy and dull. But that's what in Buddhism we call wrong view. There is dullness, and it's being known. And the knowing isn't the dullness. There are two things. There's the knowing, which isn't dull, and the, and the object that's being known, which is heavy and, and dull. But it's subtle. And, it, and if you're too identified with the dullness, you won't be able to do it. And then you need to do something else, some useful thing. Open the eyes, do walking meditation instead of sitting meditation. You know, in a skillful way, uh, do something that brings more energy into the mind. Thanks for bringing that up, Tim. We have to leave it here. It's 8.30, so we'll just take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together. So nice not to feel like we have to remember everything or anything really. Some of the words connect naturally with our actual experience and so it gets imprinted in the heart, deep in the heart, without us even trying to remember it. Just appreciating these ancient practical, wise teachings passed down through the centuries by all the people, all the women, men, individuals who have done the practice in their busy lives as best they can. They've realized, had insight, shared what they've learned with the next generation, and now we're the recipients. It's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can cultivate this mindful awareness to be part of the causes and conditions for real This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.